Samwise, we are going to have to break down the latest developments in the socialist plot to frame Grandpa Joe Biden in a lifetime of touching. (laughs) Yes, as if they're... Socialists! As if, like, there aren't just thousands of photos that were already in the public domain of Joe Biden laying his hands on women of all ages around him, kissing Chuck Grassley's wife on the mouth. I mean, (laughs) as if this, like, didn't happen. As if, like, we had to plot and conspire to find these rare photos of him being fucking gross to women in public. What shocks me is... It seemed like people in his campaign prior to this were like too afraid to tell him that this might be a problem in the post Me Too election. I mean, we said it, I think, on the show. It was like a tired take by the time we even said it on the show that as soon as he announced there were just going to be like a cascade of women who were like, yeah, he was creepy to me and he's going to get Me Tooed out of existence in just weeks, which is already kind of happening. Yeah, and the defenses of Joe Biden, I don't know. What do you think they've ranged from here? Because I saw some truly deranged things the last few days. Uh, Just, I I guess there's a lot of people saying, well, maybe this is what we need when Donald Trump is president. (laughs) Just horrid things. Yeah, I think the most mainstream ones have been like, what Alyssa Milano saying Joe Biden's always been really nice to me personally and stuff. I think that's a very common one right now is a lot of people who are probably do know Joe Biden through some thing or other and have spent time with him once or twice are now out here saying like, Oh, he's never been weird to me. So it's, there's no way he could have been weird to anyone else at any other time. Many galas and fundraisers have been attended by the Joe Biden defense squad. People, like, just journalists he was chummy with. And generally, honestly, Republicans were the people lauding him the most. I noticed that Tucker Carlson's, like, entire, I think the first part of his show that aired as we record this is entirely about, like, how Joe Biden is, like, this is, Tucker is defending Biden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now and saying he regrets attacking him in the past <laughs> right because of this and uh, of course even the the big guy himself Donald Trump came out to say that the plot against Joe uh, Joe Biden is a socialist you know psyop or something and that Joe Biden is actually innocent of touching women which I mean, once again, the whole point is, I guess, to beat Donald Trump. But for some people, if that means becoming Donald Trump or earning his endorsement, then that's somehow a positive for Joe Biden. I I just don't understand the Joe Biden thing at all. He is not announced yet. Keep in mind. (laughs) This this is all pre him actually announcing now. I don't think it's in question. I think it's still going to move forward, but I don't think that based on what I, all the reports I read in the mainstream uh, rags, it seems 
like he did not expect this. He thought that his charm would carry him in the Me Too era where individuals are going to be trying to elevate their personal experiences. And whether they're supporters of Joe Biden's or not seems like rather irrelevant. Like Lucy Flores, who the woman who accused Joe Biden of, I believe, like kissing her head and like rubbing her shoulders. Was that it? Yeah, I believe so. Which, I mean, given the photographic evidence of how he operates around women in public, not out of the realm of possibility. But because she was a part of Bernie's Our Revolution, Biden and his staff are convinced that Bernie engineered this uh, as a way of attacking Biden to ascend in the polls, which is just, I mean, this is QAnon-level bullshit. Like, this this is ridiculous. And Lucy Flores spoke at a Beto rally in uh, in the last year. So the idea that she's this hyper Bernie partisan is just a, a lunacy. Yeah, and I guess the weirdest and most prevalent take on this that I have seen is this idea that, and of course this is what Joe Biden ran with in his apology video, which we're going to play in a moment, but... This idea that Joe Biden's just from a different time and him touching people, that's how he connects with humans. And this argument that it's a regional thing, that people from Delaware are very handsy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wh- wh- okay. I didn't know that there were really any particular stereotypes to people from Delaware, which is a once, I guess. I think one of the smallest states in the union. I don't. It's just know a if- glorified like like money shelter. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it's like a you know corporate law haven. But um, either way, I don't understand how they're trying to shame the entire state of Delaware and say that they're all as handsy as Joe Biden, which I refuse to believe is true. But Joe Biden released this preposterous video, and the caption on it, which I will read, is "Social norms are changing. I understand that, and I've heard that these what these women are saying. Politics to me has always been about making connections, but I will be more mindful about respecting personal space in the future. That's my responsibility, and I will meet it. This is, I mean, just the post. That is." sub louis ck yeah it's not an apology for anything we obviously parsed the louis ck apology for his masturbatory habits back in like the single digits episodes early in the plunge history but this is really this really does him one better because this is such a non-apology a truly trumpian sort of apology this reminded me of trump's reaction after the access hollywood tape where you know there was no responsibility taken and i think biden is taking a page from that playbook to be honest the i'm not going to apologize i'm not like i'm not going to get like uh i'm not going to have what happened to al franken happen to me where i'm forced out of this thing yeah, I mean, it does signal that he's serious about running, apparently, or at least serious about clearing his image for whatever reason. 
But his apology also to me sounds like a kindergartner's apology. Like I'll be nicer and respect personal space in the future. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know. Joe Biden does give me these like vague Arrested Development vibes. He does seem kind of like an eternal grade school child. In the childish spirit of not taking responsibility or apologizing at all, let's listen to Joe Biden's non-apology with a classic soundtrack that I think reflects how Sam and I feel about the man. Folks, in the coming month, I expect to be talking to you about a whole lot of issues, and I'll always be direct with you, but today I want to talk about gestures of support and encouragement that I've made to women and some men that have made them uncomfortable. And I always tried to be, uh, in my career, I've always tried to make a human connection. That's my responsibility, I think. I shake hands, I hug people, I, I grab men and women by the shoulders and say, you can do this. And, and, uh, and whether they're women, men, young, old, it's, it's the way I've always been. It's the way I've tried to show I care about them and I'm listening. And over the years, knowing what I've been through, the things that I've faced, I've found that scores, if not hundreds of people have come up to me and reached out for solace and comfort, something, something, anything that may help them get through the tragedy they're going through. And, and, uh, and, and so I, it's just, just who, who I am. And I've never thought of politics as cold and antiseptic. I've always thought about connecting with people. And I said, shaking hands, uh, hands on the shoulder, a hug, uh, encouragement. And now, and now it's all about taking selfies together. Um, you know, social norms have begun to change, they've shifted, and the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet it. But I'll always believe governing, quite frankly, life for that matter, is about connecting, about connecting with people. That will change. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs. But I will be more mindful and respectful of people's personal space. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I've worked my whole life to empower women. I've worked my whole life to prevent abuse. I've written, the, and, and so the idea that I can't adjust to the fact that personal space is important, more important than it's ever been, is, is, is just not thinkable. I will, I will. Okay, I, I you know, I think we, we see where he's coming from. It's an entirely apologyless apology, a declaration that he will do better, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even know. It looks like a hostage video. <laughs> yeah, he also looks like he's having some kind of breathing problems. <laughs> but I was saying he's like wheezing. This yeah. is like, way, you know how people were freaking out about like Hillary's health? Like yeah. he looked like shit. Like people say like, oh, Bernie's so old. It's like, man, Biden looked like he was like, oh, put this guy in a home. Yeah. Age is just a number. And clearly Bernie's like what he's like shooting threes and balling all over the place. He's clearly fit as a whistle. And I mean, I, I think Jews, we age well, you know, Jews stay sharp until late in their lives and bernie's definitely a good example of that whereas joe biden you know sorry goyim he's not up to the caliber i don't like the cut of his jib 
And he's a sex pest. And even if he's not a sex pest, even if he was like the most upstanding dude on earth, his policies are such fucking dog shit anyway. And he's had such, what, decades of awful policy from opposing busing in like the 60s to for integration. Obviously, the Anita Hill case where he did not allow other accusers of Clarence Thomas to testify. Wonder why. <laughs> well, I think if he'd mentioned that in the video and actually apologized for his lifetime of creepiness, I would be more inclined to believe what he has to say, but this is just... And he's been doing the exact opposite of that. He's been out here saying, like, oh, it's a shame we didn't hear much from Anita Hill's side of the story. It's like, that was because of you. You could have done something about that. He's disingenuously tried to play both sides and, I guess, try to be on the, you know, quote-unquote right side of history when we have stuff like Christine Blasey Ford's accusation of Brett Kavanaugh. And it's just totally fucking nonsense and, I don't know, just completely farcical. There's no leg for him to stand on. Not to mention, this is a man who voted for uh, authorizing the Iraq War, helping credit card companies gauge customers. He's known as one of the most friendly politicians to the credit card companies, and he supported the legislation that made it so student loan debt is the only kind of debt you can't uh, declare bankruptcy on so he screwed our entire generation he's out there like on his non non uh, announced campaign saying that millennials need to stop complaining like you can like these are this this is shit he's actually saying so if, if you're our age like 20s or 30s like i don't see how you could find joe biden appealing because I mean, he supported ending Glass-Steagall. He opposed school desegregation in Delaware, supported mass incarceration. I mean, terrible with drug laws, third way, uh, liberal, just just awful. Like, he brags about being friends with Mitch McConnell. I don't know if I mentioned this, but he said Mike Pence was a good man. Like, fuck, we don't need this. Right. I mean, what does Biden have to offer that you can't get from someone like even like Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or I don't know, even Beto is like a little better than Joe Biden somehow. Yeah, I would say Biden is one of the worst people running. And part of that is, yes, he has been in the public eye for a long time. But I don't know. I think with as we saw with Hillary, that might not always be to one's benefit. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully Biden uh, does not survive the early rounds of the primary. I think it's kind of ridiculous the fact that people are even floating his name around because it's clearly just this craven Obama nostalgia. Not to mention the the fact that he's leading the polls this early is purely on name recognition because normal people don't fucking know who Pete Booty Chug is. <laughs> yeah, I mean. We'll have to revisit that Mayor Pete sometime because there's a lot to unpack there. But I guess with Joe Biden, once again, he's a sex pest. Even if he hasn't done anything to the level of what like Brett Kavanaugh did or Donald Trump did, he's still unfit to be the kind of leader of anything ostensibly left wing. He's also just has a dog shit record that we have brought up. And I, 
hopefully this is the end of the Joe Biden thing. Hopefully we don't have to hear from him moving forward. Because every time he comes out of the woodwork to say something about politics, it's always something like you said, like millennials need to stop complaining or people need to stop being so you know tough on Mike Pence or something like that. He's just completely not the right person to help us in the moment that we're in right now. You cannot trust someone like that who his only goal is the that the people in his immediate vicinity feel good or uh, not even that. I don't know. He like uses them as props to make himself feel good. But like someone who's such a fucking people pleaser like him, that's not someone who's going to like change very much and help normal people like us. Right. And I guess especially if we're going to like nitpick on the issue of whether his handsiness is actually groping or assault or anything, I think we can safely say that he's really only doing it to women, which should be kind of indicative of where it comes from. It's not like he does that to everybody. He does it. He's not kissing men on the lips. Exactly. There's no, we would have seen the photos uh, in the last few days. So if you are treating someone of the opposite sex differently than you're treating someone of the same sex, especially when it comes to your personal space, as he so put it, I mean, you kind of, the, the proof's in the pudding and it's just nothing that anyone should be getting behind. And I mean, that's all I have on Joe Biden. And on that note, let's enter the Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. All right. So we watched a few episodes of the new twilight zone you know the jordan peele produced twilight zone which important to note he did not direct any of these and he does appear as the rod serling character like you know twice an episode ish and we also checked out uh two uh, what i think are very relevant uh classic twilight zone episodes so sam where do you think we should start yeah i guess we should probably i guess start with the original twilight zone because we can kind of uh, we can spoil those episodes. They've been in the public da- domain for long enough. And as you said, the ones we're talking about are probably two of the most famous ones that they ever made. So I think we're safe to, I guess, d- dive into this and explain what makes the Twilight Zone really tick. Yes. Yeah, so to start, what is your relationship to the Twilight Zone? Because. I guess I didn't discover the show aside from like an episode here or there, like, uh, you know, the classic like uh, Maple Street or, you know, the the original Nightmare at 30,000 feet. Like other than those, I hadn't really seen much until like college, maybe late high school on Netflix or I owned like a season one on DVD. So I saw a bunch of those episodes. But you said you watched it when you were really young. Yeah, my dad would put it on, and I was frequently traumatized by the Twilight Zone. Because when you're, like, what, 9 or 10, like 11 years old, when you see stuff like this that 
is genuinely surreal and kind of challenges your perception of the world at a time when you're too young to be doing that sort of thing. So either way, the one we're about to talk about definitely gave me nightmares for a while. It was called Judgment Night. Yes, this is the story of Carl Lansar, a Germanic fellow who wakes up on a, on the ship, the SS Queen of Glasgow, a like foggy night, and he doesn't really recall where who he is, where he is. And suddenly he's whisked away to a ballroom where he meets some nice folks who are very kind to him. And Sam, what particularly about the like first uh, first half of this episode like creeped you out? I mean, the Twilight Zone is it's in like the late fifties, early sixties, so the overacting in this is real, but it's very quaint and enjoyable. And definitely the guy who plays Carl Lancer is sweating and like freaking out he doesn't know where he's from he keeps remembering things slowly as times go on and he winds up talking to some of the passengers and this importantly this takes place in 1942 during world war ii and during a lot of the fear of u-boats and the, the way that they predated on civilians randomly and of course the wanton like destruction of civilians during world war ii is kind of a signature aspect of the warfare and the, uh, the way that I think the Twilight Zone works so well is that Rod Serling and the creators really had a good grasp on fear and the way that humans respond when they're scared. And the I love this, like the conversations, like you said, when he's sitting at the table with all these other uh, passengers and they're all talking about one of them in particular talks about how it's shameful the way that the U-boats come after them. And he would prefer just a pitched battle with like a battleship or an above water ship, I suppose. And it's funny because the thing is that in that pitched battle, I guess that he would, he feels like he would have a better chance or something, which is why he's saying that. And it's because he's afraid of the, I guess, death from below, like, which he can't see coming at all, that he is even talking about it like this. Yeah, it's that like old school warfare, like the like gentlemen's, like, you know, you they, like that rows of guys standing and like firing muskets at each other. Like that, that sort of warfare is totally gone uh, by this point. And yeah, there's definitely like a healthy dose of just, you know, you're so fucking lucky you're underwater, bro. You're so fucking lucky. (laughs) Oh, in the beginning, one of my favorite pieces of narration was that the ship is carrying a premonition of death. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course, the Twilight Zone. I mean, if you've literally never watched an episode, you you should know that Rod Serling, the creator and like the classic episode, you know, seasons when it first came out in the 60s, where he would narrate and give these kinds of Aesopian, you know, descriptors of what was about to happen. And I think, like, in the end of the day, The Twilight Zone is weirdly like a collection of parables. And it's just the way people react when they're scared, I think, for the most part. But either way, going back to Carl Lancer, he's on the ship. He's of German descent. That causes, like, a stir on the ship. But he, of course, has amnesia, but he's starting to slowly remember things. He knows something bad is going to happen at a certain time. And he's just panicking, waiting for this to, I guess, you know, for the judgment to befall him. I hated that I wrote this down, but his uh, nervous subordinate's name was Mueller. (laughs) (laughs) 
my brain has been melted by the news. <laughs> so the episode essentially builds to Lancer realizing that, oh yeah, I was a Nazi. Yes, of course. I mean, he's as the ship is, of course, assaulted by U-boats, he looks out to see that the captain of the U-boat is none other than himself. And then I guess we kind of switch into you know, Nazi Carl Lancer's perspective for the rest of the episode. My apologies, because this is when we meet his subordinate named Mueller. <laughs> so, as you said, his subordinate Mueller, after they, you know, were in the perspective of Nazi submarine captain Carl Lancer now, not the victim of the U-boat attack. So, he is, of course, gloating, and he's like, wow, I just sunk the shit out of a bunch of boats or whatever and and Mueller his subordinate says but sir you know does don't you think that maybe we'll be divinely judged for this and he describes of course you know what if we were forced to relive this every night from the perspective of the victims and of course you know that's what ha- has happened and it ends off with the Rod Serling narration talking about how now that he committed this grievous crime assaulting random civilians in the middle of the night for no real reason he is doomed to live that out for the rest of eternity every night is judgment night for him and he will be sunk by u-boats to his grisly demise without any real knowledge other than the vague trepidation of what's about to happen and a true purgatory sam exactly and I mean, this should happen to all Nazis, honestly. <laughs> yeah, and hey, we don't know. Maybe that maybe that's what happened. Maybe that there was this uh you know, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, this like uh Jacob's ladder sort of you know, that that like, oh wow, I never really get to like go to any sort of peaceful place. I just like repeat this bullshit all the time. Yeah, it's like shitty groundhog day. But Either way, I think that his amnesia leading up to it and the the way that he is tortured, I guess, it, for the rest of eternity, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him, but he has this vague trepidation. It mirrors what the his victims felt, which was this idea that they didn't they weren't going to be able to see the U-boat coming. They wouldn't see the torpedo coming. They would just be assaulted and destroyed and their lives could be ruined overnight. And I mean, I think that it's a it is a fitting punishment, but I think it's genius that the way that the episode, I guess, kind of sets that up and delivers it in the end. Of course, the Twilight Zone is known for its twists, and this is a good one. Totally. And let's move on to our next selection. This one is called To Serve Man. (laughs) Now, that's a great title when you figure out what the uh, episode is actually about. Because the first scene, we see a guy in a sort of sterile, like, futuristic sort of, uh, like, like, room where uh, this robot says, it's mealtime, kindly state your preference, please. So either way, that's the, you know, it, it starts at the end, and so we back up, and basically this alien life form known as the Canimates makes contact with humans and addresses the world, the United Nations, and says basically, we've got technology that will make your life 
so effortless. You'll never run out of food. You'll never, you know, we'll end warfare and you'll never, you'll, you, you won't be killing each other. You won't be, you won't be dying early or anything. And of course they're able to deliver on it. Oh, sorry. I wanted to mention these are, these are aliens are nine feet tall and weigh 350 pounds. And there's a great scene in like the, uh, press conference sort of thing where the alien just marches into the room and it's just like shadow is towering over the other people oh yeah there's very good i guess golden age of sci-fi sort of effects in the twilight zone lots of economy because obviously they didn't have the ability to just cgi some nonsense in there they had to like go with these kind of interesting practical effects and the yeah the candidates look great they've got like the alien robes and giant heads and stuff but yeah either way i ominously rod serling calls the first candidate to make contact a christopher columbus and i think that there's a good commentary on colonialism here which we will get into but either way the candidates technology works like a charm they give them force fields that basically nullify the threat of nuclear war or really any even even conventional warfare between nations i guess they could still have civil wars but you know that's not explored we're supposed to assume that world war has ended and another big part of this world peace that they've ensured is that they're able to grow a lot of food very cheaply and produce energy very cheaply and basically eliminate want there's this really funny scene where the main character you described at the beginning who is in that in that room and who we find out is a kind of i guess like a cryptographer or what, what do you a call people researcher like, yeah, a researcher sorts, like yeah. translates he's tra- he and his team are trying to translate <laughs> a book very arrival oh we hate we saw that movie and we hated it uh, i i uh, that amy adams uh sci-fi from a couple of years ago oh dog shit yes of course and this was another movie where aliens made contact and then we had to understand their language and they um in the twilight zone chambers the main character and his team are trying to decipher a book that the candidate left behind and of course their language is so complex because they're very complex aliens or whatever so it's taking them time and they don't even know if they're going to decipher it but they really trust the intentions of the aliens because they're you know ending world war and i guess hunger and energy crises and just making life so great for humanity and oh well there's a great quote before uh we get to the aftermath someone uh i forgot if it was i think it was one of the world leaders said if they're right we're all out of a job (laughs) like if they can solve all these issues with their technology then you know none of these like bureaucrats are needed exactly but Either way, it's not totally space communism, as we find out, but they either way start setting up trips from Earth for humans to the Kanamit planet, which is supposedly this blissful place. And once people go, they don't write back because they don't want to, you know, stop having such a great time on planet Kanamit, which obviously is suspicious and... Dan, I mean, spoil it for the people. What do we find out as Chambers is about to get on the ship to go to the <laughs> alien planet? It's like as he's like, you know, the 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 ladders pulling up. He's like on the tarmac, <laughs> and then his assistant runs up, and she's like, "It's a cookbook." 
Exactly. They decipher the book and they find out that to serve man means to cook men like and eat them. And of course, it suddenly makes sense. Why, what have the aliens been giving them? They've been giving them unlimited food, which is referenced in the beginning scene that Dan described. They've been ending their ability to kill one another and removing material want from them so that they just don't die and fatten up and then want to go off to alien planet where they can be cooked. And they also, I think, ominously mentioned that they, when they first make contact, the cannabis say something like, we have done this with many other planets. And so you, I think there's an interesting, obviously there's a critique of, I guess, the way humans respond to technology, but also there's this, I guess, it's interesting when you think about it today with like liberal neo-colonialism and this idea that we have to like export democracy or whatever and make the world better for everyone you're kind of sh- you- venezuela i was trying yeah. to do a cough and say venezuela but now i'm just saying it <laughs> venezuela exactly that's a good example like we gotta we gotta bring in that stability and you know it went so well in libya what could go wrong but either way they there's this idea that we need to bring we need to end it's the white man's burden you know repackaged for today this idea that we need to end famine we need to make sure that every country plays by the rules of you know capitalism i guess or the imf or to any of these other institutions that have such like a large role in shaping the world even like nonprofits like the you know the gates foundation and i guess it's uh, I think it's very interesting to see that coming from, like we said, the early 60s when this show came out. And, of course, there's also the, I guess, meditation on technology. I think that the Canimates also remind me a bit of, like, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who want to, like, change the world in their image. Oh, these aliens were a step away from using fra- words like synergy. <laughs> but let's press on to the new episodes like i said before produced by jordan peele he's with a kind of the big name attached that i you know i guess he was a part of every episode uh i believe there's gonna be like 10 having watched the first two episodes i i have to say um i it made me appreciate the older episodes more because it's sad how the new episodes they felt like very padded out where I felt like the old episodes were restricted by the uh, television broadcast format of like, you know, 22, 24 minutes, whatever it is. <laughs> First of all, the intro was it was sort of like when you play, you know, Dan, did you play Mario Kart in on like the ni- N64 when oh, it yeah. came out in the 90s? Okay, so you know, like the, the difference between playing that and I guess playing whatever Mario Kart iteration is out now for like the Nintendo Switch, like the graphics upgrade. Yeah, yeah. That's what I felt like the intro was. It was like this like colorful CGI recreation of the classic Twilight Zones intros, which had these goofy like hypnosis spirals, and you know you're going into a door, and the door opens, and it's space and shit like that. Like very goofy practical effects in retrospect, but. I think that on this one, it was just sort of bizarre to see this kind of like CGI rollout. You know, I wondered if they were going to do the like Star Wars thing where the, int- the you know, the, the, the crawl at the beginning still kind of looks like the first movie. And, uh, you know, I, I I liked the new Twilight Zone intro. But uh, again, like 
these didn't feel quite like I didn't feel that nostalgia that because Twilight Zone to me is such a product of you know whatever the sixties or it's such a product of like a, a like that older America and I don't know I, I uh, these felt like oh okay it's like you know especially because the the first episode the comedian was directed by the person uh, I forgot the name directed um san junipero that uh notable black mirror episode i i don't know i didn't hate the twilight zone episodes as much as i think the general public did i saw like very mixed reviews and i actually liked the episode of the with the comedian the comedian being uh one samir wasan played by kumail nanjiani Oh, terrible clapter comedy he captured it really well what's his joke in the beginning Yes, the, he has a joke about the Second Amendment that, <laughs> honestly, it's genius how they make this. Of course, the conceit of the show is that he's very, he wants to be, I guess, a, a an honest or insightful comedian who does something important, but people don't respond to it at all. And I mean, part of it is this absurd joke that he does about the Second Amendment, where he says that like 11% of the words in the Second Amendment are about regulations and regulating guns. And of course, the joke just doesn't land. crickets. Yeah, and they and I think there's an inter- a funny commentary in this and on like the post comedy world and especially political comedy today. But he, uh, the way that they make his, in he keeps trying to use the joke and the way they turn his terrible joke into a punchline, I think is genuinely pretty creative. But either way, he meets J.C. Wheeler, who's a fictional comedian who you know quote unquote gave it all up and he like he mysteriously appears in very good twilight zone fashion and he's played by tracy morgan which is of course perfect obviously notable dave Chappelle parallels there i think uh and he was vaping a lot so that yes i think was trying to indicate that oh he has that Chappelle mystique so he's someone you would trust if you just saw him randomly at the bar you know Right, clearly like an old head of comedy, and everyone like speaks of him in hushed tones or whatever, but he goes on to make, I guess, kind of a Faustian bargain with J.C. Wheeler, and the bargain is basically that once he... He needs to joke about things that are personal to him. He needs to give up a little part of himself in order to connect with the audience, and once he does that, though, it's kind of gone. And I I do think it was kind of an interesting, like, metaphor at least for i guess the comedic process because he he tries to reuse jokes and it doesn't work and it's like this supernatural thing and of course he then goes into like this death note sort of world where he like is writing down he's trying to come up with jokes about people from high school very relatable like browsing facebook to find like people he doesn't give a shit about so that i mean I guess everyone he brings up on stage disappears from existence. As if they never existed, too, which is how he rationalizes weaponizing it later, because he's like, I'm not killing anybody. I'm just basically making it so that they never existed. Nice writing flourish was when uh, they kept using the you know commonly used phrase about comedy, like, I really killed tonight. It's like, yes, you did. Right, and, he, and I thought it was so funny because he 
it, it it does remind me of the anime Death Note, where he starts like making lists and trying to figure out who he does who deserves to, I guess, be wiped out of existence. But of course, anyone could see this coming. Once you start doing this, you irrevocably fuck up the timeline, and I guess that ends up, you know, that plays out later in the episode. We don't need to spoil all of it. To be honest, some pretty pretty predictable plot stuff. Yeah. <laughs> from I mean, you know, you can see the ending coming a mile away and that was the Atlantic's critique of the new Twilight Zone episodes, which is, is that they're easy to predict, whereas older Twilight Zone episodes are really not. They're known for having the kind of twists that you can't see coming or that really turn it on its head. I think we're going to avoid spoilers, but I will say like I appreciated the mic drop at the end. It, it, it felt apt. Also, I, I had a chat with my friend uh, who does YouTube uh, reviews. Uh, ch- check him out, uh, Steve Varley. Um, he, uh, we were talking about how we felt like the episode had a comment on this sort of Nanette, um, like like how she, uh, Hannah Gadsby in Nanette argued i guess for a sort of higher calling comedy and railed against the self-deprecation and i I was wondering sam what do you think of that framing of uh, the whole episode uh, of i guess you brought this up a little bit before of like the post-comedy sort of discourse that we have uh talked about on on here uh what do you think about that I thought it was so funny when he tries to use the the power to make people disappear on Donald Trump, and he's like, I, you know, I, one I want to joke about is that racist fascist pig, and of course the entire audience is like, good lord, please no, and I definitely think that was a that made me laugh out loud. I do think it was creative once again the way they use the bad comedy to create actual comedy within the episode. But I thought it was definitely a there's also a character in the episode that is frequently talking about how comedy is art. And he's like, you are an artist, man. You're just like a theater or or a dramaturge or something like that. He's played to be this sort of like caricature of like a fucking idiot who has a lot of money, you know? Right. And I think that there are a lot of funny critiques on the comedy world. I love also one of the early people that... uh, that Samir realizes he could use his power on is this like asshole kind of like insult comedian who just does this sort of like hacky, you know, know, I I will say that felt like, uh, that felt like almost like a real commentary on the sort of, you know, Artie Lang's of the world, the sort of, you know, unapologetically like, uh, you know, obnoxious sort of comedians who a lot of them, like I do appreciate what they do. But it definitely felt like they were casting judgment on that sort of maybe even we could say like road dog sort of like comedian who is such a like a boisterous slob. One of the things I like in this episode is that it drives home the point that I guess comedians are sort of like a kind of person apart they're they're subject to this bizarre lifestyle and obviously like frequently comedians have hard lives and have a lot of like trauma and pain and i think that this episode kind of tries to talk about the way that like people break off a little piece of themselves for you know the the fame and he admit, admits at the end of course that he did this purely for selfish reasons and I don't know. It was, I thought there was like some good commentary on it, so I don't think it was like a total wash of an episode. 
Yeah, I just wish it was shorter. That was that was basically. I, I just I I feel like the pacing was off. Otherwise, I did really like it and great casting. Um, the the woman who played Dee Dee was great too. I yeah, very useful like uh, comic relief as well. The actress who plays her is Diara Kilpatrick. What, what, what last thing I have on the comedian episode is that it's basically the squirrel jokes episode of SpongeBob. Oh God. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that like 10 minutes in and I was like, well, the episode is ruined for me. But no, it was not. I think I enjoyed it. All right, let's move on to uh, this episode is a remake of the classic Nightmare at 30,000 feet. 20,000 feet. Uh, They upped it to 30,000 feet. Oh, there we go. So the original is Nightmare at 20,000 feet, but this one is Nightmare at 30,000. I think because planes fly higher now. In like 1961. All right, before we get into this a little bit, and obviously we're not going to give away the you know major spoilers here. I'm not loving this trend of like every. It seems a little too easy to use the uh, narrative device of a podcast, and it, it mm-hmm. always comes off as corny. Like, you know, I didn't quite like it in the Halloween movie. This one, it was. I, I like this episode a little better than the comedian episode. I, I just. Uh, I just liked, uh, I don't know, I liked Adam Scott's performance and the writing and stuff. Uh, and that guy like Chris Dematopoulos. Yeah, the guy who plays Russ Hanneman in uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, he was he was really good. We have Adam Scott, who's this investigative reporter, who notably, like, it opens with him going through the TSA and, like, being, like, you know, like, touched and prodded. And he, of course was a journalist who wrote about civility. He's like the Jonathan Chate, like David mm-hmm. Brooks. But he was also in Yemen and saw like disturbing things that I guess gave him PTSD. Right. So he gets on this plane. He To Tel Aviv. <laughs> right. And he discovers a like MP3 player, like a very old one. And it has on it a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you know you see where this is going he you know it shows the uh, the podcast which is a uh, notably uh hosted by da- like dan carlin you know from hardcore history we see adam scott uh you know slowly devolve into uh wilder and wilder behavior as he listens to this podcast that talks about the uh how this plane is going down. And of course you'll remember the original was this guy seeing this creature on the wing of the plane. Yes. And I actually also rewatched the original one, the nightmare at 20,000 feet because it is such a brilliant episode and it is famous. I think partially because it has, of course, William Shatner in it. And there's lots of good like Shatner face and like screaming, but (laughs) He, I guess, is, plays a man who six months prior had had a nervous breakdown on an airplane. And I think it's a kind of a meditation or a, an allegory for the way people react to mental illness. He keeps seeing this gremlin on the airplane, like ripping up the wing and shit. And every time he tries to show to someone, it runs away. And the people think him he's crazy. And he... It's it's so interesting the way that like they kind of created this unusual symbolism for I guess what you know people with mental illness frequently go through, which is the way people you know 
discount what they're going through or think that they're unreliable or whatever. And of course, at the end, there's a very Twilight Zone twist where they show that the gremlin that we at this point, by the end of the episode, you believe that the guy is crazy and that he was just seeing some kind of monster because, I mean, how could it be walking around at like cruising altitude anyway and how does it keep escaping when he tries to show it to people but they show the damage on the wing from the gremlin and i thought that was so interesting because i was like mental health even though people think it's just all in your head it does real damage and i i definitely think it was like a a better crafted episode than nightmare at thirty thousand feet this remake which was kind of i don't know to me a little all over the place i'm going to disagree with you and say that i liked the comedian better because even though it was longer it was sort of more more coherent to me whereas this i i don't know what the point of remaking this was and I also feel like it wasn't it, it reminded me more of Bl- of Black Mirror than the the comedian did, if that makes sense. I think to the director and the writer of the Nightmare at 30,000 feet were actually did work on Black Mirror as well. So I, I don't know how to like uh, how I, I can quantify this, but it felt a lot more of like that kind of stuff. And especially like the role of technology, you know, the podcast is like, what if a podcast was trying to kill you or whatever? But <laughs> I, do, you, do you agree with any of this? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I I felt like this episode had, you know, I think there was a lot of uh, shout outs to like the Malaysian Airlines flight, you know, the the miss, the disappearing plane. You know, I, I just, one of my notes is just the word Russians with an exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only Mueller was on the flight. Yeah, just uh, folks, when you watch this app, you're gonna see some Russians. I thought it was funny. He takes off. Obviously, this like might be in the you know the not so far future or something. But he takes off from IAD Dulles, uh, which is in the DC area. But it's like thirty plus miles outside of the city. It's like in the rolling hills of Virginia. <laughs> but when he's taking off, they're like towering skyscrapers. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, I'm curious where the rest of the season's going to uh, go. I it it certainly doesn't like I kind of anticipated this feeling like more like Twin Peaks, like this event, this like huge deal, like this like you know rebirth of like a franchise, like you know like oh we have like Get Out's Jordan Peele taking on like one of the greatest you know sci-fi suspense whatever series and to be honest it's 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 good but it's like it's no like you know it's not like us or get out you know no it's definitely not and i think it has to really work to distinguish itself from black mirror today i think because that's why they adhere to having the the monologues from Jordan Peele and also the intro just to remind you that you are watching the Twilight Zone because I feel like it is going to necessarily bleed over with like Black Mirror material. And I mean, Black it's it's fair because Black Mirror was already kind of doing some of the stuff that the Twilight Zone did. But now that the two exist in like the same or, you know, contemporaries of one another, it just seems kind of odd. Oh, yeah. One last thing to end this episode on. Fuck CBS All Access. What a bullshit service. Yeah, how are, how are we going to watch this? Commercials on a streaming service? Absolutely absurd. 
um, I uh, I was given someone's password. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do that. I the person whose password I use doesn't have access to it. Hint, hint. If you're listening, just kidding. <laughs> I, I signed up for the free trial so I can give you an accurate breakdown of the pricing model Please. here. It's six ninety nine for the commercials version and nine ninety nine for the for commercial free version. Who, so I mean, you're paying, paying ten bucks for, for fucking CBS exactly. to watch like James Corden and Survivor. <laughs> like yeah this isn't like hbo or anything it's fucking cbs i mean i don't know what i'm gonna do i got a one week free trial i'm gonna have to uh, i don't know you're gonna have to watch colbert like <laughs> weep over the Mueller report well i think i'm gonna have to just like use every email address i have access to to create a free trial to watch every episode of the twilight zone which is gonna be the only thing i'm gonna use this stupid service to watch and i mean people have called it it's not like the internet was going to destroy the tv giants obviously they were just going to reinvent themselves and find a way to charge you more money for less well it's funny i hear netflix is quaking in their boots over this disney thing because they know a huge number of people are content to watch the Many, many Disney films and Marvel films and Star Wars films and Simpsons and whatever the hell else Disney owns now. Um, Are you trying to denigrate the fine selection of films on Netflix? Oh, my God. (laughs) Like Sharknado 9 and shit. And TV series with titles like Money Heist. (laughs) Yeah, our... um, our future of like basically just paying way more than we ever did for our horrible cable service is close, folks. And this is episode 50 of The Plunge. Thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> I think, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to keep going here. We, have, we, we are going to be with you uh, breaking down uh, cultural and political and... Uh, you know, moments and technology and history and all the other things y- you know and love from us. Exactly. And you know that we are not going to subject you to any heinous pricing models unlike some large TV channels because uh, we don't have the ability to. I mean, honestly, we would probably do it if we could. Yeah. Uh, we're going to create the plunge all access where... <laughs> We you have to watch like boner pill commercials to hear Sam and I talk about fucking Joe Biden being a creep. Yeah, you get twenty four hour content. I just strap a GoPro to the top of my head, and you have to see everything I do for the entirety of a day. Mostly, I'm in an office. Well, that sounds terrific, and uh, check it out. Uh, this has been The Plunge, and let's go into our new exit music. Uh, this was produced, uh, you know, and our, he also did our intro music by our good friend uh, Joe, and check out his music at Joe Joe Bags. We will link to it in the, uh, we link to the SoundCloud in the show description. Uh, Sam, any final words? No, I mean, just enjoy these sweet, sweet tunes that we now have. And that's it. Bye-bye.